Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7, and if you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page number 5. And while you're turning there, let me take the opportunity to say thank you for your expressions of of love and encouragement for Pastor Appreciation Month. Uh, I can honestly say that if I could do anything in the world with my life, it would be to study the scriptures and to help other people understand them, believe them, and obey them. And so it's an honor for me uh, that you allow me to do that here. And so I appreciate you, uh, love you very much, and thank you uh, for your support and encouragement. As we turn to to God's Word, we saw it last week uh, in chapter 6. We came to the beginning of the story of Noah's Ark, and we saw that that sin had continued to spread throughout the human population. And over time, the Lord saw that the earth was filled with wickedness, corruption, and violence. And so God determined to execute judgment and to destroy everything on earth with a flood. We also saw that a man named Noah found favor with God. And so God told Noah that he would establish his covenant with him, And he told him to build a giant ark so that he and his family and representatives of the animal kingdom could survive the flood and then start things over again afterward. Now this morning we're going to continue the story as the Lord sends the promised flood on the earth. So we're in Genesis chapter 7 and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all the clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And so as we move into chapter 7, we fast forward to the time when all of Noah's work on the ark is finally complete. And now the Lord tells him that it's time to go inside. Because in seven days, he is going to send a flood on the earth with rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And everything on earth is going to be blotted out in death. And there are a couple of details in this opening section that are worth looking at for just a moment. First of all, we see again that Noah is being spared because of his righteousness. The Lord says in the second half of verse 1, For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And we mentioned last week that in the, in the popular telling of this story, Noah is often portrayed as the, the one good guy alive on earth and everyone else is, is a bad guy. But we saw that the language of of Noah finding favor with the Lord indicates that Noah was not a sinless person who deserved to be spared. 
but that he is a recipient of God's grace. And so the Lord chose to be gracious towards Noah in order to maintain his promise to bring salvation through the seed of the woman. And uh, God's grace uh, was responded to by Noah with faith, by believing God's word, and that faith then rendered him righteous in God's sight. And I know, I even recognized that last week, that, that we don't see all of that spelled out exactly here in the text, but it's very clear in the New Testament. And so in the, the so-called hall of faith that we find in Hebrews chapter 11, it says of Noah, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we understand that Noah's righteousness is not ultimately his own. It is a righteousness that God credits to him based on faith. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. But then, as always, we should, we should also recognize that, that this salvation does cause Noah to live differently as he walks with the Lord. And so, out of everyone in his generation, uh, Noah is the only one who is pursuing righteousness because he is in a right relationship with God. But then, secondly, last week we saw that the Lord told Noah to take a pair of every animal, a male and a female, with him on the ark. But now we see more specific instructions with Noah taking seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of unclean animals. And that's interesting because the distinction between clean and unclean animals has not been made clear yet. And it's not going to be until the Lord gives Israel instructions for that in Leviticus chapter 11. And so part of of what kept Israel distinct from the other nations of the world is that they were restricted from eating certain kinds of animals. They were considered to be unclean, and they were limited to only being able to sacrifice or offer to the Lord certain kinds of animals that were considered to be clean. And so this detail is, is odd and unexpected, and it could be that the Lord uses this distinction in some way before Israel comes together as a nation, or it could be that Moses is simply using this terminology in the way his readers will understand what's going on here. But either way, I think that the extra pairs, the seven pairs of clean animals have a sacrificial purpose that we're going to find next week when we get to chapter 8. And So we're going to come back to that later. And now before we move on, I want to take a moment to address one of the most common objections to this story, which is the existence of other flood stories throughout the ancient world. Uh, You may or may not know, but virtually every belief system in the ancient world had some kind of a flood story where a god or the gods uh, flood the earth in a very similar kind of way. We find it in Hinduism, in Greek mythology, Mesopotamian folklore, even Native American tribes have a flood story. And so the objection is that we can't believe what the Bible says here because this is just one of over 200 different documented flood accounts from the ancient world, some of which actually predate the biblical account. And so this didn't really happen. The biblical authors just copied this story from somewhere else. But if you think about it, the existence of multiple flood stories is exactly what you should expect to find if a flood really happened. 
So I would argue that the existence of multiple flood accounts is actually proving the point. Right? If there was a great flood, and then the human population was rebuilt from just one family, Noah and his three sons, then even as, as mankind spreads out and, and begins to develop distinct cultures, you would, ex, you would still expect them all to hold one thing in common, which is that our people came out of a great flood. And so uh, you can debate over which account of the flood is most accurate, but the idea that multiple versions of this event somehow discount the validity of the story is completely backwards. Because for all of their differences, and there were many, the one thing that virtually everyone in the ancient world agreed on is that this event happened. Now, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then it probably won't surprise you that we believe that the, the biblical account is the true one. But verse 5 says that Noah went to do everything that the Lord commanded him. And so the, the time has finally come, and now the flood is going to arrive as we pick up again, beginning in verse 6. It says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So as we pick back up in verse 6, we see that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and, and when he and his family went into the ark. In verses 8 and 9, we see that pairs of, of clean and unclean animals go into the ark just as the Lord has commanded. And it's not entirely clear whether this involves Noah rounding up all of these different animals or whether the Lord is drawing these animals to the ark. I think it's probably a combination of both of those things. And we see that after seven days, the, wa the waters of the flood came upon the earth, just as the Lord said. Now, beginning in verse 11, we get a more zoomed-in account of how, how all this happened. Uh, the text gives us a specific date, the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year of life. And on that day, the flood begins with something like an explosion. Or, or a series of explosions as all the fountains of the great deep burst forth from the ground. And at the same time, the windows of the heavens were opened and rain begins to fall from the sky. And in verse 13, we see that Noah's embarkation process was a little more dramatic, a little more suspenseful than what we might have expected. Right? The Lord has told Noah that the flood is coming, that he needs to get everything loaded up. 
and he's, he's told him to, to, to get in, but we see uh, here in, in verse 13 that they are actually finishing up as the flood starts with just enough time to get on board with all the different kinds of animals. Now, when the Lord refers to animals according to their various kinds, I think it's best for us to understand that to, to mean biological species rather than subspecies. And what I mean by that is that I don't think that there were two German shepherds and two chihuahuas and two St. Bernards all on the ark together. Right? There were just two dogs, and those dogs contained within themselves all of the genetic potential for the, the various different kinds of breeds that we find today. And the same goes for cats and horses and so on. I think that's important because sometimes people will ask, how on earth did Noah get all these different animals on the ark? And the answer is that he didn't, right? Two, kind, two representatives of each kind of animal come onto the ark. And of course, we don't have any kind of, of official record. We don't have Noah's checklist or his roster. Uh, but, but estimates of what this would have come to go from anywhere between 6,000 to 68,000 different animals total, all of which would have been able to fit on the ark based on the dimensions that we read about in chapter 6 last week. But at any rate, Noah and the animals get on board, and then the end of verse 16 says that the Lord shut him in. So we would assume that there is some kind of latch or, or a lock on Noah's side of, of helping to keep the door closed, but the ultimate source of safety and protection comes from the fact that the Lord shuts him into the ark and seals it supernaturally. And so now we'll read about the details of the flood as we pick up again in verse 17. It says, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. And so picking up again in verse 7, we see that, that the rain continued for 40 days and 40 nights nonstop, just as the Lord had said it would. And, and this whole paragraph repeatedly emphasizes the insane amount of water that is, that is flowing and rushing over the earth. And this raises a question sometimes of, of where all this water came from. Well, as it stands, we know that the, the world is already, the, the earth is already 70% water to begin with. But about 10 years ago, very interestingly, a, a group of geophysicists uh, found that under the earth's surface, there's actually at least three times as much water as what there is in the ocean. And so assuming that the fountains of the deep bursting forth in verse 11, is referring to that water erupting up to the earth's surface 
that's a ton of water. And not only that, but of course we, we know uh, personally that, that the idea of it raining nonstop for 40 days and 40 nights is a ton of rain also. And then beyond that, you, you may or may not remember, but back in chapter 1 I, I mentioned the theory uh, that the waters above during creation referred to a, a canopy of water, something like an ocean above the earth. And if that's true, if that's the case, then at the flood the Lord causes all of that water to fall onto the earth as well. But however it happened, the combination of the waters below and the waters from above combined to completely cover the earth. So much so that verse 19 says that the mountains were covered 15 cubits deep, which means that they were over 20 feet underwater. You know, one of the craziest things that I remember from Hurricane Harvey were the pictures and the videos that you would see of people looking down at street signs that were under the water, right? Things that would normally be eye level or, or perhaps even higher are now down there in, in light of all of the water that had flooded this area. But imagine looking down at the top of a mountain. This is a ton of water. I was, I was thinking about it this week. You know how you see pictures of Earth from outer space, and you can see the clouds, and, and you can see the continents, but imagine what it would look like to, to see the earth after it had been flooded. And, and there was a picture that I found uh, of someone who tried to, to render that. It's just a big blue ball. And all this would be very cool to think about if it wasn't for the fact that, that this is a, a demonstration of God's judgment against mankind. Right? Everything is totally submerged. There's not an inch of earth that is left uncovered. And consequently, we see in verses 21 through 23 that all flesh died. All birds, livestock, beasts, swarming creatures, and mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. But in the midst of this, the ark does its job. It floats above the water and keeps Noah and his family and the animal representatives safe in the midst of judgment. And it gets to the point where he and those with him are the only things left alive. And the chapter ends in verse 22 by telling us that the waters prevailed over the earth for 150 days, which is where we'll pick up when we come back next week for chapter 8. But in our passage this morning, the, the Lord sends his promised cataclysmic flood to kill every living creature on earth. And I've kind of already touched on it uh, already, but, but it's one thing to read this. It's another thing to try to grasp the, the full significance of the reality behind the words. I really, this is one of the most sobering passages in the entire Bible. It's certainly not a happy, colorful children's story. Like, like it's often uh, made out to be. And to think about how this would have happened, with, with people watching Noah work on this huge boat for years and, and probably rolling their eyes and mocking him the whole time. But on this day, their mocking changes to curiosity as they see the waters start to come. And then that curiosity gives way to concern as the waters continue to rise. And then that concern gives way to, to fear as the waters continue to rise and they realize maybe this is actually happening. 
And then that fear gives way to panic and absolute terror in the last moments of these people's lives as they grasp for anything to save them from God's inescapable judgment. This is, this is terrible. It's horrifying to think about. And, and that aspect has led many people to reject this story because in their mind, the, the picture that it paints is one of God being unreasonable or, or excessive, perhaps even maniacal. Why would God do something like this? So if the objection from earlier is that, is that this didn't happen, then another objection is that it shouldn't have happened. Why would God do something like this? Well, I don't ever want to insult people's intelligence, but I would ask you if you've been reading the story. Because if you have, then you will have seen that humans have become wicked. They've become corrupt. They've become violent. Last week, the the Lord saw that every intention of the human heart was only evil continually. And in the same way, I think it's easy for us to read that without completely grasping the significance of those words. Everyone is out for themselves, and they are willing to resort to whatever they have to do to get what they want. The the Lord is not honored. Other people are not valued. This is not the kind of of community that any rational person wants to live in or, or raise a family in. It's intolerable to the God who created it all to be perfect. And so he sovereignly executes judgment over those who have corrupted his perfect world. And as we saw last week, this continues to be true of us today in our own lives, whether we realize it or not. I I, I know that most of us don't consider ourselves to be bad people. We know the Bible says that we are, but we really don't feel that. And part of the issue for us is, is, you know the, the old saying that a fish doesn't realize it's wet? Right? That water is just the environment that a fish lives in, so it never even thinks about it. it. It doesn't occur to a fish that it is wet. And the same thing is true with us and sin. Right? We are sinful people, and we live in a sinful world. And so most of the time, we fail to appreciate just how bad it really is because we've become desensitized to it. And it progresses. And, and many people have observed that, that things that would have made our grandparents fall backwards in shock are, are just mainstream today. And it, and it continues to progress. And just, just one isolated, limited uh, illustration, an example, because it's fresh on my mind. We were out at the Little League fields last night. And once again, we have parents who are about to fight each other over a child's game. And having the sermon on my mind, it's always dangerous when I'm, I'm thinking about the sermon, but having the sermon in my mind, it really clicked for me when I heard one of them later on saying, yeah, I got a little heated there. Because it occurred to me, no, you didn't get a little heated. You spoke abusively to another person. You were prepared to act violently towards another person. And you did that in the presence of all of these kids who are seeing your example and now thinking that this is a viable way to handle disagreement. You didn't just get a little heated, you sinned. You sinned against God. You sinned against the person you were going after, and you sinned in front of every person who had to witness you acting that way. It's not, it's not a, a heated issue, it is a sin issue. 
And, and the thing is that this is not uncommon, and, and in a thousand other ways, this characterizes us as a society. It's, it's not that something isn't radically wrong with us, we're just used to it. And so it doesn't, it doesn't land on us the way that it should. But the Bible is clear that the Lord will hold us accountable. And while we're on the subject, we also need to establish that it is good that the Lord judges sin. We want God to judge sin. If you think about the world that we live in, we recognize so much injustice. Right? Think about, about those who are, are never punished for the crimes that they've committed. Right? In some cases, the entire country knows that they're guilty. But, but based on some technicality or, or some form of incompetence, they are allowed to go free. Or think about the people who have, have been falsely convicted for crimes they didn't actually commit. They've had their lives taken from them. In some cases, it's, it's realized and they're given some type of, of financial compensation, but you can't turn back time. You can't give people their lives back. Or, or you've got this guy in Maine busting into a bowling alley and, and killing 18 people. You're telling me that he can just permanently alter the lives of hundreds of people irreparably and, and then in just one moment take his own life and that's it? Like that's all that happens? He never actually has to face the consequences of what he's done? No, the Bible declares that's not it because God will execute a perfect judgment. He will establish perfect justice. God is a God of judgment and praise him for it. Because in the end, we have confidence that all things will be made right. The problem is, our problem is, is that we want Hitler to get what's coming to him. We want child abusers and and drug lords and, and all kinds of other people to get what's coming to them. But when it comes to ourselves... And to our sin, we want God to grade on a curve. Because we're not really that bad. But we have to understand that if God is truly a just God, then it requires that he's not just against other people's sin, or he's not just against the really big sin. He is against all sin, including our sin. And so the Bible is clear that God is just He is perfectly just in every way, and he will hold us accountable in judgment. And and friends, you may not have done what this person has done. You may not have done what that person has done, but each one of us has our own resume of ways that we have contributed to the problem, ways that we have broken God's commandments, ways that we have hurt other people. The Bible declares there is not a single righteous person on earth If we have eyes to see it and be honest, we recognize that that's true. And the Lord is going to hold us accountable in judgment. And so one of the most important things that can ever happen to you is for you to come to recognize the reality of your sinfulness and what it deserves. The second most important thing that can ever happen to us is that we come to understand the good news that the Bible holds out to us. It's true, this world is not what it is supposed to be. We are not who we are supposed to be, and God is going to judge sin. But the good news is that God created us in his image and in his likeness. He created us to be in a relationship with him. Hell 
was not original to God's design. And because God loves us, he has made a way for us to avoid judgment by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. On the cross, Jesus, the only morally perfect person ever to live, experienced the ultimate flood of God's wrath so that we can be forgiven of our sin by turning from it and trusting in what he has done to save us. In this story, the flood demonstrates God's commitment to justice. But the ark demonstrates God's commitment to mercy and grace. And the cross does the exact same thing. Right? As, as Jesus dies on the cross, it shows us God's justice because this is what it took. This is what sin requires, death of this kind. But that Jesus died shows us God's grace because it means that God has made a way of salvation available if we will take it. And if you've not responded to God's offer of grace, let today be that day. In light of the sinfulness of this world, we know that God will bring judgment. But we also know that God has made a way for us to be saved and reconciled to him through Jesus. And so this morning, may we recognize the reality of our sin, and may we turn to Jesus, who has made forgiveness and restoration available through his life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we thank you for your word. And as we read this morning, one of the most terrible passages in the Bible, just a clear picture of your justice and judgment against sin, I pray that it would affect us. Lord, I pray that it would, it would give us a renewed vision of our sin and what that sin deserves. Father, I also pray that it would give us a fresh appreciation for the grace that you have revealed to us through Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning, if, if we have, have not turned to you in repentance and faith, I pray that this text would lead us to do that. And if we have, then I pray that this text would lead us to worship you and, and to appreciate what you've done and to live our lives for you so that other people can see the hope that is only available through Jesus. And so, Father, as we respond now and take this time, I pray that you would lead us to respond in line with your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.